What is God like? What is God actually like? It is the most important question in the world. What is God like? I mean, an increasing number of people who say, look, I'm not interested in coming to church. I, I don't care whether you're running some mission event or whatever. I, have, I just don't believe there's a God, so why would I care to find out what you have to say about him? And it's tempting to respond, well, tell me about the God you don't believe in. It sounds like the sort of smart aleck comment that gets you a well-deserved punch in the face. And in one sense it is. I wouldn't recommend it. But what I mean by it is this. When people say, I don't believe in God, usually what they mean is, I reject a whole lot of ideas and concepts that I think you mean when you say God. But so often what they mean by God is absolutely nothing like the God we encounter in the pages of the Bible. And so today we're going to look at what the Bible means when it uses the word God. And if you're still making your mind up about Christian things, there is nothing more important than knowing what does it mean when the Bible says God. There's so much confusion, so many different ideas out there, and we all know deep down that this nonsense that we all mean the same thing when we say God is just that nonsense. What does the Bible mean when it says God? But actually, it's not just those of us who are looking into Christian things who need to work this out. It's crucially important that those of us who call ourselves Christians get our heads clear on whether what I think of when I think of God is actually shaped by what his book says or, well, something else. Because the truth is that almost every problem that you and I who call ourselves Christians face has at its root a faulty view of God. A lack of motivation to read my Bible and pray. A lack of confidence to tell other people about Jesus. That rather ugly truth that deep in my heart, I'm quite glad that I'm not totally free of my lust and my materialism. All those, all those problems we face as Christians actually have at their heart a faulty view of God. So often when I think of God, what I have in my mind is, is something narrow and thin and grey definitely not big and robust and beautiful and, and rich enough to change the way I feel and to fire my heart to live in a different way. And Isaiah 40 sets our hearts straight as it sets before our eyes an image of what God is truly like. Uh, so Isaiah the prophet wrote between 740 and 690 BC and his book, Isaiah's Gospel, is often called the fifth gospel, Isaiah's prophecy, it's often called the fifth gospel because it sets forth in such staggering detail the things that Jesus would do in his life and death and resurrection. And it's quoted so often by the New Testament authors as they look back and realise, my goodness, God was telling us ahead of time what would come. And that's why these five weeks, um, Andy will be uh, taking you through Isaiah in five talks showing uh, the truths that were proclaimed by the apostles in the first century A.D., were truths God had revealed 700 years beforehand in his prophecy to Isaiah. And at this point in Israel's history, if we step back to when Isaiah is actually writing, uh, Israel is facing some fairly serious physical threats. The Assyrian Empire is starting to flex its muscles in the northeast, and the people of God are terrified. But worse still, they're facing a much bigger threat within than the one without, and that is that they've largely forgotten God. So when threats come, they are not ready to face them. 
The nation is characterised by wicked behaviour because as they've turned their backs on God, so inevitably they've turned their backs on his ways. And so often that's what you read in the Bible. When, when a people turn away from God, uh, the women end up being raped and sold as slaves and mistreated and men take lots of wives and the poor get mistreated, foreigners get treated like dirt. Everything flows downwards when they turn their eyes away from God. And God has warned them through Isaiah. He's coming to judge because he cares passionately about his glory and he cares about these, these little bundles of mud and clay called human beings that he made. And so when he sees them mistreated, he gets angry. And so God says, I'm coming to judge. Turn back before I judge. And the central message of Isaiah is this. Turn back to me because you can trust the God who made you. You can trust the God who made you. You can trust his unchanging character and you can trust his unbreakable promises. And it's a message that we need to hear today as much as they needed to hear back then. Okay, let's uh, look in chapter 40 as now Isaiah turns, having finished his section looking at judgment, he now turns and says, okay, why should you trust this God? Well, let me give you some very strong reasons. Firstly, we, uh, we meet the God who is a warrior who comforts gently. There are three things really in verses 1 to 11. They tell us God is coming and he's going to reveal his glory, he's going to keep his word and he's going to shepherd his flock. There's a lot in this passage, so... I'm not going to apologise for that. Um, You're just going to have to work hard. Deal with it. Um, There we go. It's not my own church. I can be as rude as I like if you don't ever want me to come back. (laughs) Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling. In the desert prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places are plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all mankind together will see it, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. God is immensely patient with his people, but the time comes when a God of justice punishes wickedness. And verses 1 to 5 tell us this is not a God who shows favouritism. It's not as if he says, well, you know, Israelites, they're my people, they're my tribe. I'll just ignore the way they behave. No, the God who punishes the other nations punishes his own people. And a God of justice is nothing to be embarrassed about. I think as Christians, it's one of those things where, ooh, no, God, justice, that's one of those things we we hope people won't ask in the question time evenings. But actually, a God of justice is a great comfort. Um, uh, About this time last year, my 95-year-old nan was at home recovering from hip surgery. And she was phoned by the police to say that there had been a fraudulent activity on a bank account and uh, money had been taken and they were coming to help her sort it out. And of course, it wasn't the police. It was a gang of crooks who sent a courier to pick up her bank card and got her bank details. And they got a few thousand pounds out of her account before it was stopped. Police said they're almost impossible to trace this group and they target vulnerable elderly people. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't like the idea of a God who says, well, I'm all about the love. You know, gosh, oh well, (laughs) these things happen, don't they? I want a God who's going to punish them. It's wicked what they've done. 
And a God who can smile benignly by is not a God I want to worship. It's interesting, I was talking to a, a chap who was telling me that uh, he does a lot of street evangelism and he was chatting to a young guy on the street and the guy said, I have no interest in your God stuff. I've, uh, I've, I spent, he was in the army, fought in Kosovo and in Afghanistan. He said, I have no, after you've seen what I've seen, I don't want to hear you talk about God. And this guy said, well, it's interesting, last Sunday we were looking at the fact that God is a God who judges at church. And he said, hang on a second, what did you say? He said, God's a God who judges. He said, tell me about that. He'd never heard this message of a God who, who looked at the wickedness of the world and was angry. And for the first time, this angry young man heard something that made him think, actually, I want to know about this God. It's a wonderful thing that God is a God who is merciful and forgiving, but it is a great comfort that God is a God who is just. And verse 1 to 5 tell us that God is just, but also that having punished, he comes to rescue and provide. And historically, this looks back to 538 BC, when after having been taken away as slaves, as punishment for their sins, God would bring his people back to their land. And once again, they would dwell in his blessings. But note that the God of the Bible here is not a God who shrouds himself in mystery. Verse 5, listen to what it says. The glory of the Lord will be revealed and all mankind together will see it. God's glory relates to God basically as the sunshine relates to the sun. It's It's God experienced, felt, seen, known. It is not humble to say we cannot know God. Lots of people assume this is a line in a, it's not the greatest work of theology, but the, the film Dan Brown's Angels and Demons summarises what most people out in the world think, which is that my mind tells me we will never understand God and my heart tells me we are not meant to. Now there is a measure of truth in that, you know, how arrogant from puny little me to I have uh, everything there is to know about the great God I have grasped. But if God, the great God, chooses to reveal himself, then how arrogant are we to say, well, God may choose to reveal himself, but we cannot know what he's like. (laughs) If God chooses to do it, it's not arrogant to say we can know God. It's arrogant to deny God's ability to reveal himself to us. And God has revealed himself. Right at the start of Mark's gospel, he begins by quoting verse 3 about the voice crying out in the wilderness, prepare a way for the Lord, as John the Baptist cried out that the Lord whom Isaiah prophesied was coming. You see, God did come. God did reveal himself. God shrank himself to become a human. Why? Not because humans are so wonderful that God has always dreamed of being a human, (laughs) but because humans are so ignorant and stupid that we can never get our heads out around what God is like until God becomes like us and shows us what he's like in categories that make sense to you and me. God has revealed himself. Then verses 6 to 8 proclaim that this God who reveals himself is a faithful God. A voice says, cry out. And I, this is Isaiah, said, well, what shall I cry? All men are like grass. And all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fall, because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. The God of the Bible is a faithful God whose word stands. And if you, I don't know, it's that time of year when 
I guess a number of people who have tried to do the Bible in a year thing. And if you've made it through January, well done. Because, I mean, there's just a, you know, there's a lot in there, seriously. <laughs> Does it have to be that thick? <laughs> have you ever found yourself sort of lost, meandering through the Old Testament? And you know, I have no idea what's going on, but it sounds very familiar to what was going on, like, 50 pages before. Why does it keep going on like that? Because I'm stupid. And I'm afraid most of us are the same. And God knows that we forget. And God knows that we need to know that we can trust him. And so he says, I'll tell you what, I will record thousands of years of history of humans interacting with me so that you will know that I can be trusted, that my word stands. Because when you read through the history, you read again and again, God says, and then 50 pages later, God does. God says, 50 pages later, God does. God says, you get the picture. God's word stands. You can rely on it. And we've got the history to prove it. That's why the Bible is not just proverbial sayings and commands of what to do. It's history to encourage us that this God can be trusted. This God can be trusted. The history books are wonderful because they proclaim his trustworthy to people like you and me. His character and his promises can always be depended on. Then finally in verses 9 to 11, look with me. You who bring good tidings to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up, do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and his arm rules for him. His reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those who have young. God is a God of unlimited, universe-creating power. But he's also a God of individual and tender compassion. He is not just the God who gathers a people, but the shepherd who saves this individual sheep. It's a wonderful image of the personal care of God. It's also a reminder here that the central message of Christianity is different from the message of all other religions. It is not a message about what we should do. The central message of Christianity is a revelation that God has come. That God has come and he has sought us out. And he has rescued us by his death on the cross. Verse 10. His power. Verse 11. The power to rescue. And that is why, profoundly, at our hearts, Christians are people of faith. It is not because faith is the opposite of reason. It's never the opposite of reason in the Bible. It's the opposite of self-reliance. Faith and reason go hand in hand in Christianity, which is why the Bible is full of clear arguments. It was interesting, Felicia prayed uh, in the prayers, quoting John 20, 31. I know you're looking at John, aren't you? And John 20, 31 says, I've written all this evidence so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing have life in his name. In other words, I want you to use your brains to engage with the evidence and you'll see Jesus is who he said he is, the way, the truth, and the life. Reason is not opposed to faith. Faith grows out of the evidence for God. What faith is opposed to is self-reliance in the Bible. In other words, the two ways you can live in the Bible are not stupid faith-type religious people and clever scientific people. It's stupid people who think, I can impress God by my own 
good works, my own virtuous life, and sensible people who trust, not in what I do, but in what God has done. That is why, again and again, the Bible proclaims things like verses 9 to 11. Not a way to find God, but a God who has come to find us. Not a way to save ourselves, but a God who has come to rescue people like you and me. And that should give you wonderful confidence as you um, have a mission in March. You don't need to pick off the sort of weak-willed people who you think you could convince to do anything. You can go for anybody, the cynic, the atheist, the Muslim friend. Invite everybody because it's God who does the saving. It's not down to your ability to, uh, to sort of hard-sell people. It's God's power. God saves. So invite everybody. God does the saving. Well now, um, Isaiah turns to answer the question that every Israelite would have asked in response to verses 1 to 11, which is, can this God really do that? I mean, can he really save us? Is he, I mean, have you seen the Assyrian army? Have you heard what they do? And you're telling me to trust God? Are you nuts? Verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Or who with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who's held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? In case you're wondering, the answer to all those questions is God. I love it. Think about it. I mean, it's extraordinary when you... You and I can cut. If you cut your hands like that, it's about 100 mils of water. About 100 mils of water, give or take. God can cut the waters of the oceans of the earth in his hands. That's about 1.3 billion cubic kilometres of water. The universe is estimated to be 92 billion light years across. 92 billion light years. Light travels 5.8 trillion miles a year. And God can measure the universe in the palm of his hand. Come to God's kitchen and uh, there he is pouring the dust of the earth into a basket. Using the scales to measure out the mountains and the hills like you and I measure a flour and butter for a cake. Now the point is not some literalistic physical measurement. What did you learn in church today? We learnt that God has very big hands. <laughs> the point is just to make our minds swim. This God is immense. He's nothing, he's not a comparable, he's not like us, but a bit bigger, a bit better, a bit stronger. He is nothing like us. He's not part of the universe. He stands outside the universe. He is immense and glorious and mighty beyond imagining. But also he's no unmoved mover. As mighty as he is in verse 12, verse 13 tells us he's a personal Moral, wise God. Who has understood the mind of the Lord or who has instructed him as counsellor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? And who has taught him the right way? Who is it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? The answer to verse 12 is God, God, God. The answer here is no one, no one, no one, no one. No one instructed him how to run the universe. He knows everything. No one taught him this is right, that is wrong. Right and wrong, morality come from God. Wisdom and morality are him. And then Isaiah moves to compare God with the nations, the great powers of the day. Surely the nations, verse 15, are like a, a drop in a bucket. 
They're regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor is animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him the nations are as nothing. They're regarded by him as worthless. Less than nothing. The kings of Israel are desperately tempted to, as they fear Assyria's power, they're desperately tempted to turn to other human kings like Egypt to protect them. And Isaiah says, are you that stupid that you would turn to a human king because you're afraid? I mean, he says, look, come back to God's house. Here are the nations. A drop of, just a little drop in a bucket of water. A fleck of dust, too fine to even register on your extremely expensive digital kitchen scales. The wealth and majesty of Lebanon, they're just not even worth an offering for God. It's like saying all the prophets of Goldman Sachs and Apple, it's barely worth putting in the, the offering plate at church. It's so paltry and meagre when you think of the God that it's being offered to. And the point of verse 17, before whom all the nations are as nothing, they're regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. It's not that God doesn't care about his people. We've seen that. He's the shepherd who seeks out and rescues his people. Chapters 42 and 49 say he's got such a passionate concern that it's not enough for him to rescue the Israelites. He wants to rescue the people of all the world. The point is that when you're deciding who should I trust in, should I trust in human powers, the kings of the day, or should I trust in the God of the Bible, there's just no comparison. These guys are nothing. God is almighty. So in the light of all this, To whom will we compare God? Verse 18. What image will you compare him to? As for an idol, a craftsman casts it. A goldsmith overlays it with gold, fashions silver chains for it. A man too poor to present such an offering selects wood that won't rot. He looks for a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not topple. There's just sarcasm dripping out of this. So you're not going to worship the God of the Bible. So who are you going to worship? A lump of wood that you have to carve specially so it doesn't fall over on its face. Wow, there's a real source of power for me to trust it. How ridiculous. And we modern people join in the laughter with Isaiah at these foolish primitive types bowing down to metal statues. And if we have idols in our houses, it's not because we think they have the power to bless and protect us. It's because we're on holiday in Bali and we think they'll go well on the mantel shelf. But we should be a lot slower to mock than we are. We may not have statues that we treat as gods, but our hearts do the same thing. We look for created things to put our trust in. Our hearts are just as easily deceived. An idol is just something we look to to provide the things only God can provide. The meaning, the hope, the security, the sense of identity. And we all are tempted to look outwards rather than upwards for those things. The things that we say, my life won't be worth living unless I have. The future will be alright if only I have. The only real end to those sentences is God. But we look to our careers, a marriage, a family having a house with all the right stuff in it. We look horizontally for the things that only God can provide. 
And the way we look to those things is just as laughable as if we were bowing down before our latest Apple gadget or bowing down at the gates of the school that we've managed to get our kids into. It's just as laughable. 21 to 26, we finally see that God is the uncreated one who created everything. Again, the question comes, are you really that stupid? 21, do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. Its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground, then he blows on them and they wither. And a whirlwind sweeps them away like the chaff. Why look to career for security? We'll only do that if we've lost sight of this God. Why would you want to build your hope anywhere other than this God? He is the one who, verse 22, sits outside the earth because he's not part of the creation. He is the creator, uncreated. He is the one who stretched the sky above the earth like a, like a tent you put up on holiday. He is the one who rules the rulers of the earth. Nebuchadnezzar, Napoleon, Churchill, Obama. They come and go. Just as verses 6 to 8 put it, they're just like the grass of the field. The wind blows and they're gone. God rules over them. God raises them up. God brings them down. 25. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal? Says the Holy One. Lift your eyes. Look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Get out of London, look up. You're looking into 80 billion galaxies in the observable universe. There are between 6.1 sextillion and 1 septillion stars. I have no idea what those words even mean. I think scientists basically couldn't count any longer, so they just made up new words that would impress us. But here's the thing. God made every one of those stars, and he knows them by name. Every one of them. But the thing that really blows my mind is that most of the universe, most of the, the galaxies in the universe, we never even see. Whole galaxies have burnt out before humans developed telescopes powerful enough to see them. Which means God didn't make them primarily for you and me. He made them because he is the sort of God who just delights to make far more than is necessary. You know, the Milky Way's got more than enough for you and me to keep us busy for the rest of our lives, just stargazing and thinking, wow. But not for God. Not for God. He loves creating beautiful, rich, amazing things so much that the universe stretches for billions more galaxies than we could ever need. The night sky doesn't just inform us that probably is a God, it sings. There is a God who is rich and glorious and mighty and beautiful. But after all these wonderful things, an odd note strikes into the orchestra of God's praise. A grumbling, complaining little voice is heard from the back. Isaiah's audience, Israel, are not listening. They're 
shoulders hunched like a stroppy little toddler, kicking their heels. Well, who cares how great he is? Because he doesn't care about me. Because if he did, my life wouldn't look like this, would it? You know, fat use having a big universe-creating God when he's just doing whatever up there and ignoring all the problems in my life down here. He doesn't save his people. Isaiah replies, do you not know, verse 28, have you not heard the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth? He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. He says, don't be foolish, Israel. Don't be foolish, people of God. Trust in the Lord and wait a little while longer. None of the things I've told you in the first 27 verses of the chapter stop being true because the circumstances of your life are hard. Hold on, wait on, and you will see God's salvation. Just wait a little while longer and he will renew your strength. He will keep you going until you see him and you see his salvation and you see his glory. This is the God of Isaiah 40. This is what Christianity is about. When Christianity talks about God, it means this and nothing less. It is not just the the British take on the universal concept of God. Christianity reveals the one true God, the creator of all things, the one who made himself known through Jesus Christ. And the Bible tells us that this is a God of immense, limitless power who speaks cosmoses into being. This is a God of kindness and compassion, who doesn't trample the weak and destroy the sinner but who in his kindness dies for us on a cross. He rescues his sheep and he strengthens the weary, sending his Holy Spirit to live in us, to breathe trust in his promises. He is God who comes to save his people even when we've rejected him. (coughs) If you would call yourself a Christian, the question is, is this the way you think about God? Or have you domesticated him? Is your God the sort of pocket-sized God who fits into the pocket of your trousers? A God who's small enough not to cause you any trouble, but he's never big enough to look after you, to take the weight of your hopes and to free you from your fears. See, it's only when we get a glimpse of what God is truly like that we start to see why it is that knowing him and being known by him is the greatest privilege and joy in the universe. It is only when we get a glimpse of his majesty and might that we start to realise how appalling it is for me to turn my back on this God and live in his universe without reference to him. It's only when I grasp his awesome power and trustworthiness that I start to put less trust in myself and the things of this world. It's only when I see his goodness and his generosity that I learn to love my sin a bit less. 
It's only when I see how generous he is that materialism starts to lose its grip on my heart as I trust him to provide and his future to be my great hope. This is our God. And if you wouldn't yet call yourself a Christian, let me just ask you, is this a God you want to ignore? Is this a God you want to live your life without, away from? Here is our God, and he is glorious. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for Isaiah. We thank you for his vision of your splendour and majesty and might. Please forgive us for the pathetically little ideas we think about you, for effectively the fact that we commit idolatry. We think all sorts of silly things about you which are far smaller and weaker and less good and rich and true than the reality. Help us, we pray, to build our lives on the reality of how wonderful and mighty and majestic you are. Amen. Amen.
seeds. Just a couple of things uh, before we leave. Firstly, uh, a big thank you to Phil. Phil will be dashing off because he's got to get up to Clapham for six o'clock. Um, but I will pass on my thanks this week uh, to him. Uh, secondly, if you are new amongst us and you don't know, we, um, we have a little deal on the box, bottom of your sheets on the flap there for the Pig and Whistle, which is a pub just down the road. If you take the little flap there, you can get half-priced food uh, and enjoy uh, an evening. I'm sure a number of people will be there 